0: You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and, uh, and welcome to you all. Welcome to the Law, Lieutenant. Thank you so much for coming this evening. This is, of course, the occasion of the RSA President's Lecture, one of the highlights of the events in the Society's annual calendar. This year, we're delighted to welcome Simon Nelson, Chief Executive of FutureLearn, who will speak to us about a transformation in education and learning online which reflects and responds to society's needs. Anthony Painter, the Director of the RSA's Action and Research Centre, will join Simon for the discussion after he's spoken. The RSA continues to develop its programme on creative learning and development within the school gates and beyond. And we see learning as a lifelong pursuit. This year, building on the innovative work in the US of the Cities of Learning initiative, we're hoping to explore how we can empower a UK city wide movement to bring passion back into learning with the help of technology. Our report, launched today on A Place for Learning, has a focus on the importance of place in promoting lifelong learning as part of citizenship, civic purpose and community identity in a fictional city called Kensalfield. It could be anywhere. There has never been a better moment to try to crack the riddle of how we engender a greater inclusive learning culture in the UK. But before we hear from Simon Nelson, it's my very great pleasure and honour to ask you to join with me in first welcoming Mr Kenneth Elisa, Her Majesty's Lord Lieutenant of Greater London. Thank you.
1: Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and and thank you very much for that warm welcome and the fact you've named this imaginary country after me. I'm very pleased (laughs) or your city, rather, after me. That's an extra honour that I wasn't expecting. Um, I just want to make a couple of quick remarks about why I think what we're doing this evening is so important. Uh, My wife and my children and I frequently go on holiday over many years to France. Uh, actually the south of France. And one of the best bits about going on holiday down there is not the sun and the sand and the weather and so on. Those, those are all rather popular with the family. But for me, it's going to FNAC, the bookshop, and the DVD shop and so on. And there's something really exciting. It reminds me of the first time of going to a big library and getting that sense of all that knowledge and so on there. So I always manage, although my wife has now lost interest in going on FNAC ventures, but I always manage when in, in France to go and spend a couple of hours in FNAC wandering around buying books that I'll probably never quite get around to reading because they're in French and that's a little bit hard. But nevertheless, I feel, as a Cambridge man, that having bought the book, that's half the battle. And <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and I remember every time I go in there, there will be some big display and we'd be caught in this big display, like a sweet shop. And the books would be on philosophy. They almost always are, if you think back to the times you've been to FNAC, they're on philosophy, book after book after book. And if they're not on philosophy, they're going to be on politics. And if they're not on politics, they'll be on biography of a politician who's a philosopher. It's all there in front of you. Now, it's not quite fair to make this comparison, but if you go into W.H. Smith, the books that are laid out are autobiographies of TV celebrities possibly a taxonomic or possibly even an oxymoronic set of words there, but anyway, never mind, autobiographies of people in whose lives at the very best their claim is that they are normal people, although they're clearly not. So there's nothing there, there's no thought, there's no depth, there's nothing. And that's, that comparison resonates with me rather deeply. It was amplified, though, in the Brexit debate, the scars for which we will bear for a generation and the, the fallout we're all still dealing with. In enough time and another place, I would talk about the divisive nature of that whole campaign. But tonight, it's, it's not about that. Tonight, I just want to quote from a chap who drives me around as occasionally as Lord Lieutenant. He was puzzled by the Brexit debate as we went into it. He was more puzzled by the outcome. But he was really grumpy about the nature of the debate and we probably all were, but his description of it is so powerful. He said, sir, you know, watching that debate, listening to that debate, reading about it in the newspapers, it was like two drunk men in the pub arguing about something. So I want to establish in your minds a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum are those tables of FANAC based philosophical works, and the other end is the British two drunk men arguing about something of fundamental importance to our nation. In this generation of if it doesn't work, You turn it off and turn it on again, rather than trying to work out what has gone wrong and then solving the problem. I think we have a national challenge, and it's to move the needle of collective thought closer to my FNAC end and away from the other end, which tragically could start with an F where we're in the pub, but at the other end of the the point. And the RSA plays a critical role in the UK in helping to move that needle. There are too few places in the UK where intellectual thought is worth a premium and where it gets the kind of coverage that you'll be getting this evening. And that's sufficient intellectualism from me. I will now get off the stage and hand over to the real star, who has generously named his town after me. Thank you.
2: (laughs)
3: Lord Lieutenant, ladies and gentlemen, it's an honour to be invited to address you all today on the subject of the future of education. It's an honour, but it's also an occasion with the potential to replace the unrevised exam to haunt my recurring stress dreams in the future. Because I'm not standing here as an academic expert, nor have I built up expertise in education through a lifelong career in the industry. In fact, before being offered the opportunity to set up and run FutureLearn, my roots were in media, where I spent nearly 15 years leading digital change at the BBC. So in order to offer a unique and hopefully pertinent insight into this critically important area, I will draw heavily on the primary sources to which I have unique access, the voices of our nearly 5 million learners and hundreds of teachers. And I'll hopefully draw some parallels with the RSA, an institution whose continued focus on learning and development and giving everyone the opportunity to contribute in a complex and unpredictable world feels completely aligned with FutureLearn's mission. It's exactly five years now since MOOCs, massive open online courses for those of you new to the term, swept through the global higher education market. MOOCs are online courses, often between two and ten weeks long, which draw thousands of people to learn together, in some cases tens or even hundreds of thousands. And in January 2013, Thomas Friedman, the New York Times columnist, said the following on the topic. Nothing has more potential to lift more people out of poverty by providing them an affordable education to get a job or improve in the job they have. Nothing has more potential to unlock a billion more brains to solve the world's biggest problems. And nothing has more potential to enable us to reimagine higher education. Now, those are bold words. And I've spent the four years since launching FutureLearn having to confront some of the overhype that this represents, as well as the equally unfitting dismissal of MOOCs that many sceptics provoked by this digital utopianism have often, sometimes gleefully, pronounced. And I had experience of this at the BBC as well, as each new technology and new entrant from the MP3 to Napster to Netflix was hailed as the death of radio, the death of TV, and of course of the BBC itself, or was dismissed as just the latest technology fad that wouldn't really impact how we did things here. More proportionate responses are required to new technology, not to comfort the complacent, but to inspire and catalyse real transformation. But my more immersed market perspective now is going to lead me, at times, to sound as idealistic as Friedman did four years ago and maybe even uh, to agree with him on some points, but hopefully with a bit more proportion in the timing and scale of the challenge. Because there's no question that the potential to transform access to education is in our hands. And what's more, only the internet can enable us to adequately scale the provision of education to meet the exponentially increasing needs of the world. Yet the internet is a tool, not a solution in itself. And while MOOCs are an incredibly powerful catalyst for rapid change in the industry, they're just one element in a much broader digital transformation. And more than just broadcasting information to people, to which many of the early online learning providers have limited themselves, more even than just reaching people, we must reach, engage, and inspire them so that they're empowered to change their own lives and ultimately the world. And the key opportunity that we at FutureLearn are focused on to harness that potential brought by the internet is social learning. And indeed, bringing a collaborative, peer to peer element to education is one of the internet's greatest offers to education, we believe. Let's look back 50 years for some context. In 1964, the newly elected leader of the Labour Party, Harold Wilson, had a vision to create something he termed the University of the Air. His first address at the Labour Party conference in Scarborough became known as the White Heat speech because he said, the Britain that is going to be forged in the white heat of this revolution will be no place for restrictive practices or for outdated methods. It was intended to provide a wake up call to those involved in education and industry about the impact on society that rapidly advancing technology was going to have. The white paper that followed two years later, when Labour were elected to power, recognised that whilst a traditional degree is important, the new economy would need a range of skills that traditional approaches to education were, and still are, too slow to deliver. I'm sure that Harold Wilson was sometimes accused of overhyping at that time. And yet, the University of the Air, of course, became what we now know as the Open University, the founder and the whole owner of FutureLearn. And it's difficult to overestimate the impact it has had on education in the UK and the effect of its founding and pioneering work in distance and online learning on the many open universities that have sprung up around the world subsequently. So back to today, and 27% of British citizens have a degree, compared to 18% in 2004 and just 5% in 1966. But we know that progression from school to the next educational level remains a huge challenge. I was at a dinner with some current undergraduate students recently and was saddened to hear the student president for a top UK university regretting that she's chosen university. Another wishing he had been better informed at school, where university was presented as the only next option, rather than force himself into debt. Their decisions were driven by their financial situation. We need to do more for school leavers of all ages and we can move beyond the worthy but still relatively small-scale attempts at widening participation that are attempting to break down barriers that still exist to block many from progressing in education. Equally, the degree is no longer fit for all purposes and for those cases where it is the appropriate choice – it's often no longer enough. Whilst more employers are now demanding a degree as a minimum requirement, those leaving higher education need more ways to stand out. In addition, most employers find recent graduates to be lacking in key communicative, critical thinking or technical skills. Once in work, many of us now change our career not just our jobs, several times in our lifetime. and A large number of those jobs are either radically changing due to rapid technological change and digital disruption or simply didn't exist five years ago. This requires us all to be lifelong learners and engage in continuing professional development, whether mandated by our employer or not. And research we recently carried out shows us that 5% of UK adults have taken part in a short online course and another 5% plan to do in the next 12 months. It's just a beginning, but we believe these online courses are finally moving into the mainstream. Perhaps even more crucially, employers themselves are now recognising such short courses as valuable. Around half say they now consider them to be a differentiating factor when hiring. And many more say they expect to in future. But once you leave the UK and move beyond the developed world, the scale of the challenge becomes so huge, it's almost bewildering. I visited India a couple of years ago with a a UK government mission. And they were talking about uh, the need to reach and improve education for tens of millions of people our traditional approach as UK education to developing bilateral education partnerships felt dated and no longer relevant. Scaling the traditional modes of education adequately just isn't feasible. There are an increasing number of digital platforms, though, that are starting to crack the code to educating effectively at scale and opening up educational opportunities that previously were the exclusive preserve of a privileged few. And of course, one of the best ways to open up access to education is to make it freely available to anyone, anywhere. This too has been one of the most revolutionary aspects of the last few years in higher education, as most of the world's most respected and credible institutions have begun to deliver high-quality courses online for free. Now, of course, they don't do this for purely altruistic reasons, and many of the startups like my own, that are enabling this shift are trying to find innovative new commercial models that incentivize and future-proof those organisations willing to experiment with free to reach scale and deliver greater impact than ever before. One such new model is to try to break down the monolithic degree into modular courses that can be studied more flexibly alongside work. This helps to fit learning into daily life and enables people to try out education before committing to full-time study, or to pay just for the credentials required, precursors of what feels like inevitable changes to the ways people pay for education in the next few years but it's about more than just making things accessible. And one area which we believe is too often neglected uh, is to make education truly engaging so that people who wouldn't normally look to education to help themselves or else wouldn't normally find help in education can start to do so. Because unlocking a door that no one will open won't achieve anything. Bottom line is, if we want to both reach an ever-growing audience and empower them to get what they need out of education, it's got to be engaging. It's got to be enjoyable. So the first ingredient we play in here is excellence in user experience, which has got to be equally effective across all devices to maximise that flexibility for the learner. It's got to be uncluttered. It's got to be simple, technology can't get in the way of enabling learners to find what they need and to progress through their learning. And yet the existing state of most learning management systems is still just not good enough. In some cases, verging on embarrassing when the smartphone generation compares it to how they would consume their media or do their shopping or banking. The second ingredient, of course, is high-quality content. Grainy footage of an hour-long lecture filmed from the back of the lecture hall just won't cut it. (coughs) Academics used to -to face-to-face teaching need training and support to make the most of this very different medium uh, that is the web. We need to innovate with content. We need to use storytelling and new forms of content beyond videos and text in order to engage learners and in turn empower them to apply their learning to their life or work. And to understand what I mean by a flexible, enjoyable digital experience, that can change everything for one learner. Just hear what Lee, from here in the UK, a future learner, has to say. From my wheelchair, future learners have taken me to places and given me experiences I never thought possible. I've explored our deep oceans, monitored climate from space, gone shopping in the time of Richard III, identified the dead and caught the perpetrator, and gone over the top at the Somme in World War I. Digital education of a high calibre transforms the options on the table, and treating engagement as a priority rather than an afterthought means more people will be captured by it and will be empowered by the tools it equips them with. But the third, and to my mind, most interesting ingredient to a powerful online learning experience is the social element, where content is designed to spark discussion and peer-to-peer conversation becomes part of the course itself. We've constantly been inspired by the feedback and social interactions of our learners, And connecting with a community digitally is something our learners themselves find extremely valuable. One learner on one of our first courses commented that it was the contributions of other learners that elevated the course from a two-dimensional to a three-dimensional experience. It adds a richness and a motivation that had been lacking before. Tiga, a learner from Nigeria, said that the most enjoyable aspect of FutureLearn courses is the conversations with people from all over the world. Myra, a teacher from Colombia, says, everyone enjoys sharing their experiences. There are many differences in our cultures, but we all have the same goal, to give the best to our students. That sense of a global community coming together and learning together and learning from each other is spine tingling when you see it in action. And the sense of community can help learners address difficult issues of a deeply personal nature, from shared experiences with drugs and addiction, disabilities or illness. One of our learners said, the experience of mental illness in the family can be very isolating and it's hard to find others who understand to reach out to. But I'd say there's a sense of shared understanding on these courses that underpins any conversations relating to the course materials. But as well as a powerful tool for learners, it's an incredibly effective method of teaching as well. It's enabling educators to achieve things that they just wouldn't be able to in a traditional classroom. Healthcare courses have benefited especially from the social learning approach that we're pioneering a lead educator on a course about cancer said the course was one of the most valuable teaching experiences she had ever had because as well as a traditional teacher student community they were joined in a global classroom by fellow academics from all over the world professionals patients families of patients all together, challenging what the educator was saying, discussing the solutions together. The University of Glasgow are developing courses that will be simultaneously open and free to the world, but also an obligatory element of one of their elective modules on campus. This exposes their students to a range of different perspectives. It brings the world into their classroom. Thus, they're enhancing their own students' on-campus learning while also sharing their excellent teaching material with the world. Agriculture and climate change, politics, social and commercial entrepreneurship, the potential for the global public to learn across boundaries and cultures in these shared but varied issues is manifest. And increasingly, it's an incredibly powerful research tool for those educators able to test and respond to the ideas of thousands of people around the world and crowdsource new forms of research, as well as using these new techniques to disseminate, raise public awareness and the impact of research. And this form of social learning can also excel where education is impossible in a traditional format. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine were unprecedented in their incorporation of a digital learning opportunity into their wider humanitarian response to the Ebola outbreak of 2014-15. Nurses in treatment centres all over affected areas in West Africa uh, took the course. In one case, we got an email uh, from uh, 40 nurses who'd uh, taken the course on a single mobile phone that someone had downloaded all the materials for. Um, they were only eligible for one certificate, so they emailed us if they uh, could get around that, which, of course, we helped them with. Um, so in educating people in a crisis setting, we believe we can start to bridge the gap between humanitarian and developmental approaches to international aid by starting to address some of the problems causing crises in the first place. Beyond public health, there are a multitude of challenges worldwide that education must and can rise to meet. In all number of industries, there are widening skills gaps that are threatening to halt economic growth and prevent the efficient utilisation of growing technologies. Climate change brings an urgent need for not just great scientists, but business and government leaders educated in and motivated by sustainability. And every country I've visited tells the same story, about shortages of trained teachers, engineers, nurses, about a need for softer employability skills or harder digital skills at every level of society. These issues are on the agenda of nearly every government and affect developing and developed nations alike. And yet, repeated and repetitive attempts to tackle the problem still often feel piecemeal, uncoordinated and quite embedded in traditional thinking. We need to think bigger, we need to join up our activities, and we need to utilise this tool we have, the internet, to try to scale our approach to these challenges. Economic development needs sustained and collaborative efforts, not from external organisations imposing solutions, but from people with local knowledge who have the skills and resources they need to tackle problems as they evolve. And social inequality within and between nations demands not just equal access to resources, but a fundamental change in the way people engage with those resources within their communities. So at FutureLearn, we focus on scale, partly because it's a prerequisite for a good social experience, but also because we believe it provides enormous potential, if used in the right way, to make a bigger difference In confronting these challenges. Because no single group can hope to translate and localise content for all the people in the world who'd benefit. But the still relatively untapped power of social learning, we believe, is to enable learners themselves to develop, customise and share content in ways that are more relevant to their own communities. We need to pull together and combine our efforts as first as a nation to use the technology available to us. And this will then unleash the creativity required to develop what really matters, which is the teaching. The transformations that's needed must go beyond the current trajectory of Harold Wilson's vision 50 years ago. And I can see three main ways in which a massive change in scale is needed. First, we need to start thinking above national borders. We must face the future with a truly international perspective if we're to be realistic about tackling some of the world's big challenges. They don't exist in isolation from each other, and nor can their solutions. Second, where the solution until recently has been broadcasting methodology, one to many, we need to move towards multiple dimensions of communication not only between the educator and the learner, but between learners themselves. And third, we must remember that the task is too big for one body. We need a huge collaborative effort between a substantial number of the world's best educational institutions, working together for mutual success in breaking down the global barriers to access and engagement with education. And to end, it might be unclear at this point what the role of the traditional university will be. Now, my answer is simple. The same as today. The campus-based degree will always have its place. And there are elements of such an education that online learning doesn't attempt to replicate. But there's no room for complacency. Over 10 years of trying to encourage and implement change in that brilliant but infuriating organisation that is the BBC gave me some insights, as well as a healthy dose of masochism that enables me to enjoy the challenge of driving change across multiple universities. At the BBC, we made lots of mistakes. We took lots of wrong turns. Sometimes we only stumbled upon the right answers. We like to pretend there was a plan, uh, but believe me, that plan was heavily argued, debated, challenged, and adapted. So the first message to the university sector is there isn't a clear path or a right answer, but experimentation is key. And it needs to start yesterday, and you need to be ready for these experiments to fail, and fail fast. And universities need to recognise that though the prize may today seem tiny next to their core business, the digital opportunity on a scale that doesn't is dwarfed by what their core business is doing, things are only going in one direction. And the sooner they go through the organisational pain of putting digital first in every area, the sooner leadership can be established in a rapidly changing market. I believe universities must rethink themselves of the digital age. They need to move beyond the physical and geographic boundaries that for so long have defined them. They need to work to identify their core strengths. They need to evolve, replicate and reinvent them using the tools available and the right partnerships. And this shouldn't be seen as an onus on them, but an opportunity. The most exciting in the history of higher education to transform their impact on learners and societies all over the world. Every single institution in higher education should be excited about digital. We have at our fingertips a tool that can fundamentally transform education around the world, to dismantle the boundaries of the current market to reach an unprecedented number of people and empower those people to tackle the world's big problems. Those are today and those we haven't yet foreseen. In the 60s, the technology of the time meant the solution was broadcast one to many, limited to national boundaries and delivered by a single institution. In today's networked world, the solution we're working on is to create that network of many educational institutions plus employers plus learners that can facilitate peer-to-peer social learning across the globe. And in doing that... We hope to help higher education rethink its delivery to meet the needs of this changing world. Open, flexible and affordable education provides people with the skills required in the modern economy and enables us to confront the major global challenges of our time, from climate change to skills gaps. And that's why those involved in education need to embrace change and deliver the kind of education digital consumers now expect As in the 60s, the white heat of revolution will be no place for outdated methods or restricted practices. And this requires us to work together, embrace change, and meet the changing needs of learners all around the world. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Simon. That was uh, utterly fascinating. I want to start off with this question of... The Universities. Um, I had a conversation with a senior leader in a university relatively recently, and we we're talking about the future of higher education. He said, Well, the future of higher education is obvious. And I said, Well, what is it? He said, Well, it's MOOCs. I said, Well, that's interesting. I said, So are you saying that the three year degree course is going to come to an end? You're going to modularize it? It's going to be broken up? People can engage in different ways and piece together their own qualifications? He said, oh, no. He said, No, no the three-year degree will stay, but it's part of our offer for alumni. So the degree of resistance that is going to be experienced, not just within the universities, um, but within the sort of policy, funding, regulatory environment, there's a whole system around it. And I wonder how quickly the model is going to be able to accelerate through what is quite a sort of
3: embedded resistance. I think... Um one of the uh, challenges as I was reading that um, utopian quote from Thomas Friedman at the beginning and then actually realising that I, I agree with most of what you're saying, but the challenge and, and the thing that often uh, I think alienates people within an industry is, is if you imply that this stuff's just going to happen overnight and, uh, and, and you don't add some sense of the, the, the scale of time it could take to drive these changes and the scale of the challenge in doing so. So I absolutely... You know, I, I don't think that the three-year degree gets swept away, you know, even within the next five years, ten years. Um, I don't concur with uh, the CEO of another MOOC platform who said there'll only be ten higher education institutions in 50 years' time, and my company is likely to be one of them. Um, <laughs> I, um, but... Uh, I do think that um, one of the things when I'm confronted by that kind of uh, discussion is to try and take it away from MOOCs. Because I really do think MOOCs are just one small element. And start talking about, well, you know, the internet. How is the internet going to transform your institution? How is the internet going to transform the three-year degree? Because you're not telling me that, you know, even the generation going through universities at the moment you know, are satisfied with what they were getting five years ago? I don't think they're probably satisfied with what they're getting now. In many cases, um, so there are myriad opportunities for the university to rethink its offer. And even if it's completely protective of the traditional undergraduate master's degree, and some some of them are, but not by no means all. Then my encouragement is always well, just to think think about all the new markets and opportunities that you can now reach. So even if you keep your core based on the things that you've done for years, what about all these new opportunities to deliver new forms of learning to people beyond your traditional age group in the UK and then pretty much to every society in the world? Is your world-renowned institution going to be one of the ones that says, no, we don't do that? Because I really think that you 're missing out, and you 're in danger of not future proofing your organization because I can guarantee there 'll be lots of others who are going after it
2: yeah, okay i sort of touched on something that often um, is a concern with MOOCs, and that, that, that is that the people who benefit it are those who already have benefited from education and I that may have changed in our understanding about technology from the Harold Wilson era is there was an egalitarian notion of technology at that time, that if you accelerate technology, you will accelerate equality. A rising tide lifts all boats. And we now know that actually technology has disparate um, impacts. Um, And often those who already have social capital, capability, the wherewithal to benefit from new opportunities will take it and accelerate their, their, their gain, and others may be left behind. And what's kind of interesting in the global story of inequality, and learn quite clearly is a powerful tool for narrowing some of the global inequalities in terms of access to learning, um, that narrowing of inequality isn't necessarily matched domestically where there still is a sort of embedded exclusion from opportunities um, and learning. How, how do you see organisations like FutureLearn and you know, digital learning technology more widely addressing those, those questions of divide?
3: Well, I think, uh, you know, in, in our case, it, um, it has occasionally been a frustration that the, the, the portfolio of content that we've put out to the world has often been at a very demanding higher education level. And Mm -hmm. that's understandable because the universities that we're working with want to showcase their outstanding research in this area or want to uh, develop and entice people to uh, move into their undergraduate or postgraduate programs, etc. But uh, there's nothing stopping whatsoever uh, except the will and the uh, sort of the generation of that content, using these technologies and these approaches to target much wider ranges of society. Mm. And even at FutureLearn, we have uh, around a third of our audience uh, don't have a degree. Uh, That's a third of quite a large number now. It's five million people. Uh, We run courses uh, that try to demystify university, help people get into university, help people get jobs, help people develop English language, help people develop other languages. I think um, there's a bit of a chicken and egg approach and and what we're looking for is the right kind of motivated organisations to come and work with us to say, okay, well, we're going to help solve the content challenge Uh, and we are really prepared to try and help the marketing challenge and the the presentational challenge, the distribution challenge in the UK as well as internationally. But it has to be in partnership. And when I talked about some of the fragmentation of initiatives, I do see a lot of brilliant, worthy initiatives that still feel so analogue mm-hmm. in their approach. And um, I think we can and should do more, and I think we should you know, join up some of these institutions and try and do something at scale, because the tools are there now. Yeah. What, what's stopping us?
2: And I, I think it's interesting you've gone for the, the global at-scale model for completely understandable reasons. It, 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 when we've looked at some of this in terms of how you can integrate new digital technologies into widening access to learning achievement progression, we've kind of gone for the opposite route. And we're looking at you know, city, place-based um, el- ways of intervening. Um, going back to the sort of social connections and peer-to-peer element, well, that's local as well. And you know, thinking about the BBC, it obviously has a global presence. Um, but it has an exceedingly local and regional presence, also. And how do you see those two levels of intervention working together, or or do you think ultimately that the, the local ones are doomed to fail because they they can't get access to the sort of content you're able to?
3: No, I, I absolutely not. I, I see, I see the, the the whole ecosystem working together. And uh, I think again, at the moment, it's all it feels all quite fragmented. But actually, if we could. Coordinate a bit more, you know, the digital delivery to flow through and alongside some of these local initiatives. I think the power of that uh, uh, digital delivery would be immeasurably improved yeah. by the addition of, you know, some physically based, you know, social as well as you know, uh, educational um, aspects. Great, thank you.
2: Okay, I'm going to open it
1: out to um, the audience. Thank you. I just finished a certificate, a short certificate with MIT Media Labs. And it's responding a Dilbert cartoon, how does your 30-year experience help to solve this problem that is a year-old problem and a year-old technology? A lot of emphasis of what you said is about training initially fresh students. But there's a lot of people 30 years, 40 years, 50 years old that need retraining and that would go for short certificates. And Respectfully, this has a, a bigger social impact in regaining these people into society. Great. So can you comment on that, please? Thank you. Thank you. And this lady at the back here.
0: Building on one of the points raised by the Painter, does FutureLearn um, engage the present-day equivalent of people who turn to mechanics institutes as a way of bettering themselves and acquiring learning um, that they wouldn't have otherwise had access to? And if not... How do you think that could be achieved?
3: Uh, well, you know, my, my uh, passionate belief is that what, what we're doing has relevance for everyone from the age of 13 to 103. And we have um, lots of learners uh, that span that whole age group. Um, and uh, if I could, I would have peppered that speech with more you know, inspiring stories we get from people... Who feel uh, people of all ages, but particularly older, older age groups, who feel that uh, future learning services like it have unlocked uh, entirely new forms of learning for them that they felt excluded from. I remember, um, we had, uh, uh, at the time, our oldest learner, um, there was a guy called Norman, um, and he uh, took our course on ecosystems. He was 93, I think. And uh, he said um, he had a small garden and it opened his eyes to uh, what was going on in that garden and just brought him immense pleasure. But the thing that struck was he said he, he kind of felt that all educational institutions had given up on him uh, up to now. They, they didn't care. He didn't really have a role in society. And uh, I think um, the only thing blocking pe- uh, a wider range of people of all age groups from accessing these uh, courses uh, is awareness uh, and uh, in some cases of course connectivity um, but hopefully uh, we can over time address both of those um, and on the subject of um, more uh, vocational uh, training uh, and a wider range of uh, courses uh, I go back to the point I was saying about you know, we are looking for you know, a scalable solution to that area Uh, we want to try and bring in an experiment with new ways of impacting uh, training and development uh, across all areas uh, of learning and we believe that what we've got does have relevance uh, across a much wider range of subject areas than we've been able to cover so far, although we're very proud of what we've done already
4: Thanks Simon So, Two questions if I might The first is that Had we asked you to speak 20 years ago, I suspect that you would have predicted a much more profound transformation of education by technology by today than has actually happened. In many ways, if you go into schools, you go to universities, you go to colleges... They are much more similar to how they were 20 years ago than most people thought they were going to be who were excited about technology. So I'm interested, firstly, in what do we learn from the fact that actually technology has not transformed education the way in which a generation of people... It is now a generation of people have predicted and what is different now. And then secondly, if I might, what about employers? One of the challenges here is the ambivalence of too many employers towards the idea of their workers developing... Not just vocational skills, skills and work, but just broadly developing and growing as human beings. As something which actually makes them, you know, better workers and better people. Do you think we need to do more work about getting employers to understand that having a workforce that is learning is a good thing for them as well as a good thing for society and those workers?
2: Thank you, Peter Pell, RSA trustee. Um, It strikes me that millions of people are making choices about their place. They're travelling on boats across the the Mediterranean, um, and they're. Education is being disrupted, their lifetime learning is being disrupted, and it would seem that digital learning is a really interesting opportunity uh, to re-engage people with their own civilization and, indeed, with with the cultures they're moving into. How do we get the the money to flow to engage that group of people? Great. Uh, Thank you. Um, You touched, just for a moment, on the whole thing of the financial model and uh, courses being free, and I wondered if you wouldn't mind just expanding on that, both in terms of how it's working now, how you see it working in the future, um, and not limiting it to universities, you know, thinking with these questions like vocational learning and employers and so on, uh, what might be the financial model beyond the university being involved?
3: Mm. Okay. Um, well, I'll go back 20 years first. Um, and uh, it's a really interesting question, actually, because 20 years ago I was just starting at the BBC. And uh, um, actually, you know, I was uh, in, the, in BBC Radio Head of Strategy and starting to confront uh, the challenge of digital and how that might change. And um, I think that uh, what I sp- watched then over ten years in radio and then five years in TV and since is the shifts don't quite occur where you think they're going to. So, at the start in radio, as I say, many people thought that BBC, you know, many, many BBC radio stations would be irrelevant once you had iTunes, once you had Napster, once people were able to self select on demand, etc. Now, we never believed that, but some things did take us by surprise, you know. So, uh, there was a revitalization of speech radio, for example, driven by uh, the emergence of podcasting. Um, and actually, radio listening grew as the uh, variety of ways that you could consume and the variety of devices and the competition grew, etc. And when I went into TV, um, it was kind of even more uh, crazy because um, very senior people in the BBC were predicting that on-demand consumption of TV would be 50% of all consumption five years later. I think it hadn't hit 1% five years later. And yet the shift had still felt seismic in that period. Mm. Um, and I think that what one has to understand is under the. Uh, I believe that the continents are shifting underneath. Uh, and um, I remember one person who went, was in publishing said to me that um, when you're in the midst of an, uh, an industry that's undergoing rapid digital transformation... People assume it's kind of a steady or even a rapid erosion. So in my experience, it isn't. You wake up one morning and uh, half of your iceberg just fell into the, uh, the water. And I think that uh, the pace of transformation is going to be slower than in other industries. Because education is not a commodity that can just be transformed by new forms of distribution. Um, there are huge and appropriate barriers to entry for a whole range of new players around schools, around education systems, around credentialing, etc. But I think if you look at what is one of the most vibrant markets at the moment in digital, it is education. And it feels like day in, day out, uh, solutions are starting to be found. And I think the only thing that one would debate is the pace of change. I believe the fact of change is now inevitable. Ask me a pin by when? I won't do it. Um, employers
2: and convincing them that their fulfilled workforce, engaging, learning, developing is a critical part of their, their own interests.
3: I mean, we, we are finding, actually, employers have a huge appetite um, for much more flexible and relevant uh, ways of uh, developing their workforce. Uh, and they're actually feeling an enormous pressure as uh, the demands to continually retrain uh, and re-equip that workforce uh, become uh, even more rapid. Um, and uh, I think that, again, the vast majority of corporate and employee training and development. Uh, even the online versions has been grounded in pretty, pretty poor user experience, poor systems. I know much of the training that I did at the BBC, etc., was you know, really felt like it had been built in 1988. Um, and again, I think that there is uh, now... I think we're on the verge of new forms of digital learning sweeping through... Employers and employers starting to recognise these new forms of more modular, stackable credentials when they make their employment uh, decisions. It's already happening in certain industries.
2: But uh, on the training front, you can understand that. But there's a broader question as well: Do employers have a role in promoting learning as an endeavour for their workforce and their employees? That's beyond the training needed on on the job. Absolutely,
3: absolutely, and. uh, we believe they could be, you know, an absolutely pa- a really powerful and critical voice for raising awareness of the kind of services that we and other players in the market are offering, uh, and potentially funding them yeah. as well uh, to start to move towards one of the questions we've got coming up. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and in some ways, they may be the most important voice of all, because if employer A says that they value. Uh, this credential or this course, uh, then that means that you might get a job with it. And for many people, majority of people, that is the key motivation. Although, as we discussed earlier, not the sole motivation for all learners.
2: There's a question about refugees and learning. Huge need, huge opportunity, huge humanitarian challenge.
3: There are some challenges that you see where um, you kind of get to the conclusion that... um, some form of digital solution is the only solution, not exclusively, not without uh, the uh, supplement of face-to-face if and where you can provide it. But uh, we are actively looking at what we could do uh, to make uh, more of our courses more accessible in some of the most inaccessible parts of the world Uh, and uh, to work with other organisations to recognise and support... Refugees, uh, in order to um, plug the enormous gaps in their uh, educational development that uh, they're suffering, so um, it's a very live topic, and one where um, I would expect uh, you should expect to see uh, some interesting movements uh, in the near future.
2: And now, 30 seconds on an entire new financial model for the university sector. <laughs>
3: I think the key is, you know, everyone recognises you just can't give everything away for free. It's not free. You know, educators take time. Someone has to pay for the creation of these courses. And if you do them the way I'm espousing, now these are quite expensive uh, things to create. But we believe free is an incredibly potent tool to generate scale, to introduce these forms of social learning, and to reach, to break down the barriers to reach a wider range of people. You need to innovate in where you create the charging, in where you bring uh, the financial requirements. And we, for example, are offering now programs of multiple courses that build towards uh, credit points that you can then transfer into the uh, university. You don't have to do them beforehand. You can try it out beforehand. You don't even have to do it once you've taken the learning. But if you're motivated and want that credential, then that's where the payment comes in. It's just one of many areas of commercial innovation that are going to be required to really take advantage of these opportunities.
2: We've run out of time. Um, but thank you all for coming. Um, and thank you for an excellent set uh, of questions. Um, but finally, if you could join me in thanking Simon Nelson for an excellent talk and again about a great topic. Thank you,
0: thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, the RSA.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.